Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast and indeed welcome back for 2020 and a happy new year from the entire Talking Indonesia team. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today's topic is the rise of China and the challenge this presents to Indonesia. Over the course of December and January, we've seen the latest in a series of periodic confrontations between Indonesia and China over fisheries to the north of Indonesia's Natuna Islands. Chinese Coast Guard vessels have accompanied a fleet of fishing boats in an area China says is part of its traditional fishing grounds, but which Indonesia claims as its exclusive economic zone under the United Nations Convention on the Laws of the Sea. Indonesia has sent naval and civilian patrol vessels in an effort to force the Chinese craft to leave, and Indonesian President Joko Widodo has personally visited the Natunas to underline the importance of the dispute to Indonesia, as he did in the aftermath of a previous confrontation with China in 2016. What do such incidents tell us about the implications of China's rise for Indonesia? And how is the Indonesian government tackling the challenge of China as an ever-larger strategic and economic power on its doorstep? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Amirza Adishailendra, Associate Research Fellow in the Indonesia Program of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at NTU in Singapore, who has written extensively on Indonesia and its foreign policy approach to China. Amir, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Dave. And a pleasure to have you on Talking Indonesia. Now, could I start with the broader context of the challenge of China's rise for Indonesia? What has been Jokowi's view of China over his five years in power, both in economic and security terms? I think Jokowi's view on China has been quite favorable, although domestic political constraints often force him to be tough on China. As we can see, China was very tactful since the Jokowi's assuming office. They've been very warm with Jokowi, and Jokowi's also responded reciprocally. In fact, I think he's been pretty mesmerized by the speed of technological development in China and modeled some development in Indonesia after China, such as the special economic zones in China that Indonesia adopted, that China also play a large role in developing. So under Jokowi, special red carpet treatments to China investor have been very clear. For example, as you can see, that there have been a clear case of Indonesia favoring China over other investors, especially Japan as the traditional partner in some high-profile project, notably Jakarta-Bandung high-speed railway and hydro power plant in Borneo. And I think the latest news was that Indonesia have these huge infrastructure ambitions accounting for 412 billion dollar and 25% of it will be fueled by state-owned enterprise and traditionally under the previous Ministry of State-owned Enterprise Rini Sumarno there have been a clear favorability toward China's investor especially because they are more lenient with different low standard in contrast to the Japanese one although 
under the current minister Eric Toh here, it is remains to be seen how he's going to treat China, whether or not the red carpet treatment will continue. But I think it will. So I guess overall, you're saying Jokowi has been very well disposed towards China. It's a important source of investment for his government, even taking precedence over longstanding economic partners like Japan. Is that something new under Jokowi or or is that the approach his predecessor, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, also took to China? I think to a large extent, Jokowi continues the effort of Yudhoyono, especially after President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono signed the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership with China. That really enabled Jokowi to push even further. But I think there is a lot to say about his personality and his pragmatism that foster a better economic relationship with China. For example, the first thing that he did after assuming office was to create China's desk at the investment board. And I think the other thing that Jokowi did personally was to task Rini Sumarno, his former minister of state-owned enterprise, to court investment from China aggressively. And the, the rate of China's investment to Indonesia, if you compare Yudhoyono and Jokowi, is quite contrast. There has been surge of investment realizations under Jokowi, while before 2014, China was not even in the top 10 foreign investors investing in Indonesia. Under Jokowi, China skyrocketed into the the third largest investor. Even one can make argument that China might be the top investors in Indonesia. And I mean, has Jokowi's interest in relations with China been purely economic or is there also a strategic dimension? I think personally from Jokowi's, his view on China has been very economic because that's really his big concern in Indonesia. Although I guess if you think about Jokowi's cabinet, there are a lot of different prominent personalities that one thing to have different working relationship, especially in defense and security, basically riding the wave of the rise of China, wanting to have a better strategic relationship with China. So in that sense, there are a lot of willingness from different parties in Indonesia to basically build this better relationship with China. For example, Indonesia's defense minister, Prabowo Subianto, went to China uh, recently and basically reassert this importance of defense military-to-military relationship with China. Would it be fair to say that enthusiasm for deeper ties with China is universal across Jokowi's cabinet, or are there cabinet ministers or indeed state agencies who are more wary? I think in general, different state agencies have a very favorable view on on China as a partner, but of course, there are different institutional interests. There are different conditions that often shape this uh, agency view to be a little bit more anti-China and hawkish against China. Similarly to the Indonesian parliament, the, the views sometimes reflect the public debates on this anti-China sentiment, especially if you look at the last elections narrative, there are a lot of this criticism or kind of disinformations actually about the latent threat of influx of Chinese migrant workers to Indonesia. 
while actually the Chinese migrant worker play a very a very little role in Indonesia. There's only in in 2018 it was only recorded that around 30,000 permits issued. Although there are also a lot of discussions about illegal migrant workers. So I guess discussions on China is really depending on context and institutional interests. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned this issue of Chinese migrant workers. You know, I think particularly the rumors that Chinese companies have brought in Chinese workers on Chinese construction projects. I guess the other thing, as I alluded to in the introduction to this podcast, has been this recurring set of incidents around the Natuna Islands, around the area that Indonesia claims as its exclusive economic zone, where. We've seen a series of confrontations between Indonesia and China, really dating back at least a decade to 2008 or so, of Chinese coast guard vessels accompanying Chinese fishing fleet to fish in waters that that Indonesia feels it has an exclusive right to exploit. How have those sorts of incidents coloured the government's view of China and relations with it? I think for over two decades, the relationship. Has interestingly been very stable, in the sense that recurring pattern of、uh, encroachment in the North Natuna Sea has not been negatively impact on the relationship. For example, in 2013, before the signing of strategic partnership between Indonesia and China, there were couple incidents happening in the border, very in in a very similar nature, and in 2016, despite the high profile incidents. In the Natuna, that did not stop Jokowi from favoring China in a lot of different economic projects. So so far, the government of Indonesia has been willing to shelf the conflict for stability of relations and basically economic growth. But I think the interesting thing about the last conflict or incidents in the Natuna. Was there was shift of narrative from both China and Indonesia, which really triggered a lot of domestic debates within Indonesia. I think so far, Indonesia and China have been very consistent in in its narrative, especially since nineteen ninety four, that basically there is no territorial dispute, and leaving the questions of Whether or not there were overlapping claims in the Natuna unanswered, basically the government just downplaying the significance of the issues. But in the last round of conflicts, the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokespersons was very clear that China and Indonesia don't have dispute over territorial sovereignty, but they have overlapping claims of maritime rights and interests in some areas of the South China Sea. Which shift the conflict from no conflict at all to there are overlapping claims, and I think it took Indonesia by surprise. There are a lot of discussions from the ministry whether or not the approach to shelve the conflict is sustainable, and if you pay attention to Retno Marsudi, the foreign minister of Indonesia. Annual press conference、uh, last week, she was surprisingly very firm against China, basically refusing China unilateral claim, and reasserting that traditional fishing right or deriving claims based on historical 
claims is not recognized under the United Nations Law of the Sea 1982. I mean, could I just clarify, when you talk about China making this statement of overlapping maritime claim and interests, isn't that exactly the same language that they used in 2016 as well, when you had this series of three confrontations, again, between their Coast Guard and, and various Indonesian patrol vessels? Has it really been a shift of narrative on their side? Yeah, I think the shift of narrative this round is clearer in the sense that it is a follow-up from 2016. Actually, this attitude is similar in 1994 when China offered to uh, demarcate and negotiate over the boundaries. And of course, Indonesia refused this. But so far, China has always emphasized on the first part that there is no territorial conflict with Indonesia. But right now, they are more overt and more willing to emphasize that there is actually an overlapping claims of maritime rights and interests. Of course, the nature of this claim is still very much vague. Why have we seen this shift in emphasis from China, placing emphasis on the dispute? What might the driver of that have been? I think the reason why there are shift of narrative, it can also explain from two different layers. One would be Indonesian government reading on what happened in China, and the other one would be internal development within Indonesia. And if you follow the development in China, there has been a lot of different military reforms that impact on how China approached South China Sea. And I think the Indonesian government played close attention to this and noted that China is rather different than what it used to be. Basically, they are more assertive. There were more willingness to use force and I guess the latest incident was a little bit different too because usually, although this kind of incident is actually very common, even after 2016, there were still a lot of different fisheries incident and encroachment to the Natuna. But I guess the government of Indonesia still adopting this shelving arrangement, deciding to just shelve this dispute for the sake of economic cooperations. But right now, they are noticeably, there were 30 fishermen basically in last December that was guarded by a coast guard. So Indonesia also started noticing this very different China playing in Indonesian sea. Uh, exclusive economic zone. So there was that assessment that I think play a, a lot of roles to this shift of narrative. Yeah, no, I, the, the the Chinese vessels seem to have stayed in the the area Indonesia claims as its exclusive economic zone for much longer in, in greater numbers this time. The interesting thing is when you talk about a shift of narrative, one of the features of Indonesia's response to these Natuna incidents over time has been I guess it's stability that each time an incident like these ones has happened, Indonesia's foreign ministry has come out and said, we don't have any dispute with China. And in any case, things would need to be resolved under the UN Convention on the Laws of the Seas. You've had increased military deployments to the area and often military exercises. And then you've had statements from the Indonesian government about the need to intensify the economic development of the Natunas, be it by 
increasing industry there or by moving fishers from other parts of Indonesia to the waters around the Natunas. And essentially, you know, as far as I've seen, all of those things have happened again this time in response to the incidents in, in 2019. What are the new elements of Indonesia's response or, or the narrative that we've seen around these incidents with China over December and January? Yes, I think there are shifts into a more in- institutionalized approach. If you pay close attention to Jokowi's first term, there are a lot of noises, uh, basically strong actions against China, but most of them are this ad hoc mechanism, for example, under the Ministry of Marine and Fisheries Susi Pujastuti leadership, there was this task force 115 that tasked to guard the uh, the border, the Natuna border. But right now, what Djokovic want is a little bit more, uh, less noises, a more harmonized approach. If you pay attention to the narrative from the military camp and from the defense ministry and from the uh, coordinating ministry, they are actually a very mild narrative. They are downplaying this significance of China's claim that it was a merely a sovereign right dispute, not necessarily a sovereignty dispute. But underneath that mild rhetoric, there was this more institutionalized approach by Djokovic's administrations, especially including a lot of law enforcement law in the upcoming bigger omnibus law. Omnibus law is this comprehensive law that will cover a lot of things, uh, mainly tax and labor. But Jokowi's administrations clearly included these issues on maritime affairs that basically try to empower the Indonesian Maritime Security Agency into a credible cost guard. So I think what's interesting about the current approach is that the rhetoric is a little bit milder and less noisy, but they are more institutionalized. I mean, you mentioned, although it's been in many ways a more concerted presence from China in Indonesia's claimed EEZ, that the approach has been to downplay the significance of the dispute in Indonesian rhetoric. In your analysis, how serious a threat to Indonesian interests do these Natuna incidents actually pose? I think the the concept of China threat has a different facet, has a different layer, but mainly in the, in the security realm, it was more of a fishery threat because I don't think China will back down from its claim. And I think what will happen in the future would be China increases assertiveness to deploy its maritime militia and its coast guard. So it's really up to Indonesia, the Indonesian on how they would like to respond to this, whether they want to normalize China's frequent encroachment and shelve the conflict for economic partnership, or they will take China fishing threat more seriously. So right now in the realm of fishing, I don't think the foreign ministry and uh, different agency, especially the coordinating minister of maritime affairs, Luhut Panjaitan, wanted to see this as a huge threat to Indonesian territorial integrity. So that's why the, the current narrative that is courted by Luhut basically 
downplaying the significance of this fisheries competition into just a matter of sovereign rights, not sovereignty. But the, the other interesting thing was when the Chinese foreign minister spokesperson was basically asked by the press, clarifying whether or not China has a claim on the Natuna Islands, they also did not give a clear answer on this matter. They did not deny that and they did not confirm. So this ambiguity spread a lot of worry that actually the nature of China claim perhaps would be beyond the current fisheries narrative. And I think there are a lot of back deal uh, negotiations and uh, a lot of attempts to clarify from both sides, especially from the Indonesian side on the extent of China's claim. So that would be the concept of China threat. But I think there is also another layer to it that is more political, especially to Jokowi's political standing, because there are still quite strong anti-Chinese narrative in Indonesia and sentiments in Indonesia. Uh, Red scare, the communist fear has not interestingly completely gone and it's still sometimes being cemented and mobilized for political gain. And I think a more high profile incidence for Jokowi would be badly impacting his political standing. But I, I have a sense actually that this current round of internationalize this news and making this news a little bit more public is actually on the interest of Indonesian agency. So I felt like there are a lot of internal reason why Indonesia want this conflict in Natuna a little bit more visible. Are you predicting then that if these incidents continue to recur, Indonesia will pursue largely a, a diplomatic approach, an approach of making sure these incidents are very visible internationally, or might we see steps to increase Indonesia's patrol capacity or other different approaches? The, the questions that I asked to myself when I heard this incident was, why now? Why suddenly Indonesia is interested to escalate these issues, making it a little bit more public by reporting these issues to media, right? Because after 2016, there have been many Chinese encroachment and it has been very much under the radar of the media. I think the interest from the Indonesians to make it a little bit more visible has something to do with the passing of omnibus law, which is a comprehensive law that contain maritime elements in it. And I think by making it a little bit more feasible, they will be able to say to the parliament and, and to the public that there is a need to create more institutionalized harmony yes, approach to the border, especially by empowering the Indonesian Coast Guard, making it a little bit more credible, increasing budget for them, basically increasing their oceans going capability and assets, and basically different policy that was very difficult before because of different reason. But right now, there are a lot of ground for them to push this as one of the tactic for them to leverage this omnibus law as well, I think. So there are a lot of this internal interest element for Djokovic to make it more feasible. But I think after omnibus law, let's say pass, if it's pass, I have a sense that Indonesia will return to its preference to quiet diplomacy because of the 
overwhelming economic interest between Indonesia and China uh, for China infrastructure project in Indonesia, I think. So you're saying the prominence these events have gained in the Indonesian and international media has been largely a matter of domestic politics within Indonesia to, to drive through reforms to Indonesia's maritime security infrastructure. Is that right? Yes, correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, one of the aspects of these incidents and Indonesia's response to them that, that has been highlighted is that there are, is it 13 different agencies, I think I've seen quoted in the media, with some responsibility over maritime security. Does that make it more difficult for Indonesia to respond to incidents like the ones we've seen in the Natunas over the past month or so? Certainly, especially in 2016, as you can see, a lot of agencies such as the Indonesian Navy and the Indonesian Maritime Security Agency was very upset with Minister uh, Susi Pujastuti, the Minister of Marine and Fisheries, because this is not uh, Minister Susi's jurisdiction. This is not the jurisdictions of uh, the fisheries. It's supposed to be the jurisdictions of the Navy or the jurisdictions of the Indonesian Coast Guard, actually. But Indonesia has no Coast Guard as of now, right? So these overlapping jurisdictions certainly create a lot of internal conflict between different agencies and become a huge detractor to a coherent response. And that's why I think what Djokovic is trying to do is to promote more harmony and coherent and within the, the upcoming omnibus law, what Djokovic and his inner circle wants was essentially to they emphasize other ministry roles and basically empower the Indonesian's Mar- Maritime Security a- Agency or in Indonesia called as Bakamla as a credible Coast Guard. So the result of this law would be basically it will de-emphasize de- the role of the police, the role of transformation ministry, the role of marine and fisheries ministry, and, and even the role of navy from the border protections, I guess. And then they will basically just focus on their own portfolio. But of course, for the navy, the reason why they so- has been very supportive on Empowering Bakamla is because on the one hand, Jokowi has a good control on the military right now. And on the other hand, they also see Bakamla or the Maritime Security Agency as their potential reservists. Most of the people in the Bakamla is from the Navy. Like the current chief of Bakamla was actually uh, the former deputy chief of staff, Ahmad Taufiqur Rahman. So there are a lot of this element that create harmony. So uh, ultimately, a lot of different institutional interests are being served by strengthening Bakamla, this uh, maritime security agency. Yeah, that's the plan. And I mean, you've you've mentioned as well, Indonesia has this overwhelming economic interest in maintaining good ties with China. Is there any developments that could happen in the Natunas that would disrupt this approach disrupt this calculation for the various Indonesian actors or, or you know, are you really predicting going forward each time incidents happen we'll mostly see quiet diplomacy and occasionally things might be made more public if, if there's utility in doing that? Yeah, I think from China's side because the narrative of South China Sea has been tied closely to Xi Jinping narrative on the China dream and national rejuvenation, there is no way that the China will back down from 
asserting themselves in Natuna. So it's really the matter of Indonesia, whether Indonesia wants to accept it as normal and create some sort of arrangement in the border or Indonesia will react through force. So far, the because of these special positions of China in Indonesian economic interest, I would say there is a lot of push for Indonesia to keep it quiet. Of course, uh, in this case, Indonesia chose not to because of internal interest passing a more coordinated maritime law. But I think in the future, it, there will be more quiet diplomacy. I will predict that it will return to status quo and the country will somehow renegotiate this tacit, the, the former shelving arrangement. Although, of course, uh, how sustainable it is, is still very questionable with China's rising assertiveness and military dominance in the South China Sea. So in the near future, at least, uh, I think the Indonesian government will prefer quiet diplomacy over uh, use of force. Well, it'll be an interesting situation to watch as it unfolds over the remainder of Jokowi's second term. There's a lot more I could ask you about it, but Amir, I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us on okay. Talking Indonesia today. That was Amirza Adisya Associate Research Fellow in the Indonesia Program of the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. Talking Indonesia returns on 30 January with my co-host Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, as always, you can listen to all 122 Talking Indonesia episodes for free at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.